I'm Lake Miller. And I'm Emily Cunningham. Welcome to Gym City Diversity, a podcast where we talk about diversity and inclusion in the Dayton area. We are from the National Conference for Community and Justice of Greater Dayton, or NCCJ. NCCJ works in the Miami Valley to increase understanding around the topics of diversity and inclusion. Today, we have a special interview with Brent Johnson, owner of Square One Salon and founder of The Ruby Girl. This episode is a second in a multi-episode series for Pride Month. Hey, how are you? Hi. Great. Well, we appreciate you calling and taking time out of your, your busy schedule to talk with us. Absolutely. So this month, our podcast, Gem City Diversity, is kind of creating the Pride Month series. So this is our second installment. And we are very grateful that you are participating with us. Great. And so we are just going to get started by talking about the Ruby Girls, and then we'll move on to Square One Salon. Does that sound okay with you? Yeah, sounds good. All right. What is your name, and what is your title? Uh, Brent Johnson. I am one of the owners of Square One Salon and Spa. And how did you come to the position that you were in with the Ruby Girls, sort of what inspired you to form them? I started dating a guy named Josh, uh, Josh Stuckey, who is one of the original Ruby Girls. And uh, he and his friends were getting together and having parties. And I would jump in and just attend the parties. And then one day I decided I was going to go for it and do a little number. And so that's how I got started. And that was about 29, 30 years ago now. Oh, wow. How many people are involved now? Now we have about a dozen of us that actively perform, and over the years there have been an additional probably 15 or 20 people who've performed with us and either moved away or retired or, you know, whatever, drew them away. (laughs) That's a great number. Yeah. How many of those people, I'm curious, were part of that group 20-some years ago? When you first became involved, are there still a large number who are involved today? Who who are actively performing? I would say there's probably five or six of us that are actively. There's Josh and then Tim and then Mark and I uh, and Jonathan came a few years after that. And we're still friends with the, uh, the originals, but they are uh, mm-hmm. living in Chicago and Columbus. And they're, they're a little more laid back now. Okay. The mission for the Ruby Girls is to end HIV AIDS and the stigma around it. Yes. Can you, can you talk about the fundraising that you do for HIV, AIDS, and LGBTQ charities? Absolutely. So when, when we first started, you know, we're talking about late 80s, early 90s, you know, there was certainly a huge stigma around HIV and AIDS and around even being able to say it out loud or, or people associated with it. So what we were doing is we were finding a way to make people more comfortable by, you know, having a time making them laugh and making them part of what was going on and then go, oh, and then also this is really an important subject we want to tell you about or make you aware of. And, you know, as things have changed, people have changed and people have become more accepting and more informed and uh, better allies and advocates for those people that are HIV positive who might have AIDS and who are also gay because all that sort of goes together. So as we've done that, we're like, you know, what else do we need to do? How else can we involve the community and the world in what we're doing and what other social causes could we advance 
So we started looking at things like acceptance for all kinds of groups of people, whether it's, you know, they're being discriminated against for their sexuality or for their skin color or for their religion or, you know, how they look as opposed to other people. We just wanted to be really inclusive and made that part Mm -hmm. of of what we do. Now, I'm curious, you know, as you were talking, it brought up this point of of the change in kind of culture that we've experienced, especially, I think, over the past, few recent years and I'm curious how the response to the Ruby girls has changed from the community if there were points where you were getting perhaps backlash from the community and you know how that culture has changed you know there's there are always a few people here and there but for the most part we've found that we live in a really awesome community full of great people and we don't get weighed down or slowed down by pushback Uh, we work around it we find a way to make it joyful and it's been pretty awesome so that's great yeah i know we've talked in previous episodes about you know dayton's been voted the queerest city and you know kind of a really inclusive atmosphere and i think that's a that's a great testimony that you know we're able to go on and and really not have any backlash yeah i mean there's some there's some there's some midwest culture of you know, being good neighbors. And we have found that the best way to get people to understand you is to walk beside them and see Mm -hmm. you as human and help them understand your hearts and minds. And that really at the end of the day, we have pretty similar needs, all of us. And we can, we can come together on a lot of things. So how much money have you raised so far for your charities? Well, you know, when we started, we really didn't start, we started just for fun for our friends. And then we raised some money for some people. And we didn't track it, you know, penny for penny, dollar for dollar. Um, We just said, yeah, here's the money. And, you know, we'd buy a Bud Light with it or whatever (laughs) Uh, and give them the rest. And it evolved over the years. And so we we roughly estimate just over $2 million that we've either raised or been a part of raising. So, you know, we, we helped start Masquerade with what was then AIDS Resource Center, 15 years ago or whatever it was, or maybe longer than that at this point. And when we started that, we kicked in a lot of our own time, a lot of our our own, quote, talent, if you will, and energy, as well as some of our own money. And in doing that, we helped them raise, you know, like $12,000 the first year and then 24000 the next year and then 40000 and then 80000 and then over 100000 So we, we count that as part of the money we've helped raise that we never actually had our hands on any of the money and it wasn't right. exclusively us. We were part of a bigger thing. Um, but through that and the red table events and everything else, yeah, somewhere in the $2 million range. That's amazing. So thank you. Even though the Dayton pride parade was postponed this year, what does pride month mean for you personally and for the Ruby girls? Well, you know, I think that there are all kinds of things to be proud of. And, you know, as a Ruby girl, part of what our mission is, is about people being a part of something and feeling like a part of something, part of a community. And I think though the Pride Parade itself um, has been postponed, what about the amazing people standing up for rights of others that's happening right here in June? And, you know, there's, Mm -hmm. is, could that who could be more proud than to see all of these people coming out and standing up for each other and being a part of, of history. So I think it's just evolving like everything and I embrace it. Absolutely. 
Now, I'm curious, you know, we were talking about kind of the pride celebrations or the traditional pride celebrations being postponed due to the coronavirus. And for the Ruby Girls as an organization, you know, who does public performances, I'm curious how the coronavirus has affected your group. Uh, well, we see each other a whole lot less. Uh, we Last year in June, I think we had like eight or so performances followed by our July performance in Michigan. And so we have canceled so many things that we were going to be a part of uh, in May and June. It's been strange. It's also, uh, as we've gotten older, it's a, we're looking at now, we have our first rehearsal tomorrow night, and mm-hmm. we're all sort of like, oh, gosh, are we up for this? <laughs> it's exhausting. Right. It's physically exhausting to work all day and then at 8.30 at night go rehearse. And do and yeah. how do our numbers need to change? Because we can't have the tight choreography and be on top of each other on stage. So that does that our, our group numbers are really what set us apart. So how does it make it less us? How do we keep who we are in there? And I know we can mm-hmm. do it, but it is definitely more challenging. But in addition to that, we're sort of out of practice. We haven't had a break this long in a very long time. Right. Yeah, I saw on your um, Instagram and your Facebook that you were putting on a cabaret or rather a big gay cabaret. Yeah. So how, I know you kind of touched on how you're going to be social distancing. What does that look like for you and the audience? I noticed that you're selling tickets. We are selling tickets, and so that's what a rehearsal is for tomorrow. So I'll have more information in the future. But from (laughs) what I gather, we are to stay in the stage area and perform um, while respecting social distancing. Uh, so if that's one of us at stage two or possibly three, it depends on the size of the stage and and where we're standing. So one, we can't go into the audience because getting engaged with people is really part of drag. It's certainly part of our drag. And mm-hmm. uh, so how how do we do that? We will, we will soon find out. Uh, but it will be, I think, three 12-minute numbers while you're having appetizers, while you're having the main course, and while you're having dessert. So that's already a little different from what we've done in the past, which we do traditionally two 45-minute sets, for instance. But, yeah. Now, before you mentioned um, some of your early philanthropy projects, and I saw on your Facebook that you were announcing some scholarship winners for this year. Yes. Can you talk about what that scholarship is and how other students might apply in the future? Absolutely. So I'm not involved in that specific committee, but what I do know from what I've overheard from my colleagues is that it is this last year was done exclusively through Cybers for the Arts so that we could get it started and uh, not make it harder than we're capable of managing. With that said, uh, we gave away three $1,500 scholarships this last year to Stivers students. But I, you know what? I, I take that back. I think one of the students was not from Stivers. Uh, see, I'm not on that committee, so I, I might be misspeaking. But I know it was three $1,500 scholarships. And the show we're doing coming up is also going to be for two $1,500 scholarships is what we're hoping to raise for that. And those will be go through the DECA program that's housed uh, in Dayton as well. Uh, They do some wonderful things with students. And again, it's really speaking to what our mission is of acceptance and opportunity and connecting community. And that is where we are right now. We speak at a lot of schools, Wright State, 
Sinclair, University of Dayton, as well as Ohio Northern, and we speak on um, all kinds of things from sexuality to to the history of the the gay rights movement and all the things we do as Ruby Girls Drag. It's so kind of what we love to do right now. I think that's amazing that you speak at schools and advocate among students. I didn't know that you did that. Yeah, it's something that we sort of started accidentally. We started doing it here and there, and we speak pretty consistently at a couple of classes at the University of Dayton, one of which, interestingly enough, is a music class. We go there about twice a year, and we speak to the students. We show them the 20-minute Ruby documentary that's about 20 years old at this point, and talk about how music influences our character and how music choice defines who we are as characters on stage. So it's really awesome. And it's been interesting to look over the years how the students reacted to some gay men in the classroom, you know, talking about being gay, how that was, say, eight or nine years ago versus today. It's mm-hmm. barely even blink worthy. They're just like, and is there something else you want to tell us? <laughs> <They're-> <laughs> Totally polite, totally awesome. I don't want to misrepresent that, but they're just like, and how is this interesting? So it really goes into more of a history lesson versus, you know, what what it was before, which was reminding people that people are different and that we need to accept them. We really don't have to do that so much now with the, the students we're seeing. I think that's a good sign of growth. It is. It's encouraging. I'm very happy about it. Yeah, I noticed that with the Black Lives Matter movement that's happening right now, I'm seeing a lot of, you know, younger kids, millennials, Gen Z, sort of like teaching their parents how to approach these topics. It's so awesome. It's so great. Gives us hope, does it not? Absolutely. So let's transition a little bit into Square One, another very important role in your life. To start out, I'm wondering if you might be able to give a little history of of Square One, maybe when it was started, how it came to be. Absolutely. So uh, we started Square One in November of 1999. Uh, There are three of us that own that were going into business together. Actually, there were four. Four corners of a square, first business, Square One. Okay. But that fourth partner backed out about two months before we opened. And we were like, oh, the business plan is written. Uh, we are not redoing all this, so we're going to remain. <laughs> so we remain square one. Uh, so my now husband, Josh, and I were living with a hairdresser uh, who was friends with our current business partner. And our roommate and that person wanted to open their own salon. And Josh was a school teacher, but also a licensed massage therapist. I was an occupational therapy assistant and wanted my own business from the time I can remember. And so we just started talking and imagining and and making stuff up and having zero idea what it took to open a business, run a business, how taxes worked, mm-hmm. no idea about any of that. But what we recognized in each other is that we were get-it-done kind of people. We were social. We were willing to put ourselves out there and be wrong and apologize for it and try better next time. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, we were all broke as a joke, had no money. I think Josh and I collectively had $300 in our checking account with no savings. And uh, Doug was in a similar wow. situation. Yeah, so we just hustled and 
everyone did something to get it ready. Josh was our creative force with the name and our mission statement, and Doug was the one with salon experience looking at, you know, how much does a highlight cost? How many highlights do I do in a day? How many does that person do in a day? How much can we expect to do? And then I was um, given the task of putting together the business plan, which I had no idea how to do. Uh, <laughs> so after about six months of twiddling my thumbs and just not being able to get started, um, I fell off the stage and dragged, this is no joke, and broke my leg. Oh my wow. Wow. Since my job, and I was non-weight-bearing for six weeks, and since my job at the hospital was to help to teach people how to safely transfer in and out of the bed into their wheelchair, really prevented me from being able to work a whole lot. Mm-hmm. So uh, so that's, I was at home with my foot up on a table writing our business plan. So things happen, and what, you know, COVID or breaking your leg or, you know, so many things out there really could be looked at as bad could really be opportunity. So what that gave me the opportunity to do was write our business plan and get it done because without that, we couldn't go to the bank. So we went to the bank. We pitched them the idea. They were like, okay, we'll give you 100000 We need you to come up with ten. And the three of us looked at each other like, now what, guys? (laughs) And uh, we went and begged and borrowed, and we did not steal, but we begged and borrowed and came back with the $10,000 and – started our business uh, 20 years ago in November. Wow. That's great. Yeah. Seven of us. And uh, I, I had to give up my car so that I could work at the salon full time and take a pay cut and not have health insurance and uh-huh. uh, walk to work for two years and started off with seven employees. And we now have over 200 employees and see about 3,500 clients a week. Wow. And, uh, we I, actually, you- as you called, I was just finishing a national uh, Zoom meeting call with 350 salon owners across the country talking about what we're doing here at Square One right now to get going. Wow, that's amazing. Now, did you imagine 20 years ago, you know, when you were giving up your car and your health insurance and taking these these sacrifices that, that your business would grow to be what it is today? Never in a million years. We couldn't even imagine what that was. That's amazing. And, you know, we as we've talked about, the Ruby girls through this episode, it seems like a lot of those same ideals of, um, of inclusion and of charity have, have followed you into square one's mission and vision. You know, you have the the four corner focus and one is one of which is charity. What is charity and what does inclusion mean within your, your business? Well, you know, it's who we are as people that define who we are, who our business is. And, you know, there are some businesses that, are clearly people heavy, the personalities mm-hmm. and the drive that drives us as human beings. It, it's apparent in some businesses and other businesses, it just isn't. It's, mm-hmm. it's a commodity or, or whatever. And, you know, we, we know that our four corner focus is who we are and that's how we started our business. And it's what we believe in. And, you know, we chose when we opened our first salon to go into a rundown part of town in an old building with bent parking meters and raccoons living in the basement and boarded up windows above us. And we knew that that area was underserved and deserved better. And we believed that we could, we could stand a better chance there than being another salon on a street of five salons. Right. We knew there was an underserved population. And so we strive really with everything we have to make sure that everyone that walks in our doors 
feels taken care of, but first and foremost feels welcome and appreciated. And that's our client and that's also our team members. Um, I don't want anyone to not feel like they're being given as much as they're giving, that mm-hmm. they're they're appreciated for their contributions and rewarded appropriately. So, yeah. Can you talk about any of the specific things that you do to make Square One inclusive and make Square One welcoming, both, as you mentioned, for your employees as well as for your customers? Um, well, you know, when we talk about Black Lives Matter and we talk about salons and we talk about what salons have been traditionally, you know, through history, there's a, you know, it's either a black salon or a white salon, and you don't necessarily have to put that on the window to get a clear idea of what that means. And mm-hmm. something we did from the from the jump is our employees will be diverse, and our the people we serve will be welcome. So the last thing I would ever want any client to hear or experience is, I'm sorry, we don't do your kind of hair or this isn't right. the salon isn't for you. So making sure that the the hurdles are knocked down and that people feel welcome and that we train to that, that when we hire a service provider and they don't have a lot of experience in any area, but let's say textured hair, they're not used to highly textured hair, is like making sure they have that opportunity to learn and feel. And before the client gets here, our, our opportunity to learn is not when the client pays for the service. Our opportunity to learn is before that ever happens. So that that right. client sits in the chair, feels welcome, we're confident, they have amazing experience, and they're like, oh, my gosh, I just felt loved and appreciated, you know, not like taken advantage of just for my just for my dollar, you know. Right. Yeah. yeah. That, so, um, that all yeah, sounds so amazing. It is. It's it's what we want. And we want men to feel as comfortable in a really pretty salon as women. So we we work on making sure the colors are appealing to men um, as well as women. Because it would be really easy to put lavender and pink and peach and hearts everywhere and feel very feminine in here. But what we want to do is feel really pretty and excited to be in a space that's creative and beautiful and has shiny surfaces and, and feelings of indulgence. But then we also work really hard to make sure that we have wood tones and fireplaces and and Mm -hmm. leather and things that are also very appealing to men and women alike, but especially to make a man feel comfortable in this space as well as women. So, you know. Those are all very important things in creating an inclusive space and sounds like in what I've I've even heard throughout the community is that space is is created really intentionally to to be welcoming and and safe for all individuals. Thanks. And then that also goes with our, our clients that have disabilities. We, you know, having been an occupational therapy assistant, I, you know, have been trained in how to make sure that spaces are accessible. So making sure that there's there are even floors where every client that comes to see us can get every service we offer, regardless of their ability um, to get in and out of a chair or climb stairs or, you know, so making sure that we're accommodating people in, in giving them dignity and a sense of appreciation that they've chosen to let us do this for them. Wow. That's great. Uh Now, I know that you kind of hinted to it earlier as you're talking about this national zoom call with hundreds of of salon owners on it. What has square one done to adapt to coronavirus? And, you know, what are those, what are those battles looking like? Well, you know, the first thing that I have to do is make, my team safe. I can't make my client feel safe if my team doesn't feel safe. 
Mm -hmm. I need to make sure that I recognize each of them as an individual and not say, here are the rules and here's how we're going to do things. So everybody go to the left. All of you get in line to the left. I need to go like, okay, here are the new rules. How are we going to do things? Those of you that feel comfortable with this, please move to the left. Those of you that still see challenges, come to me and share with me what your challenge is so that we can adapt to meet your needs to the best of our ability. So one thing is realizing that everyone has a different set of realities based on child care, based on their own health, the health of those living in their household, based on their anxiety, their, their mental health. You know, there are all these things that factor into whether or not someone's going to be able to come back in the capacity they were here pre-corona. So, so recognizing that's been the first place is honoring their humanity and their, their circumstance so that we can, mm-hmm. we can adjust to them and make them feel safe and appreciated and, and still loved even if they can't do what we, quote, need them to do or what they had done previously. And, uh, no. so, and then beyond that, looking at all the things that, you know, as you, as you well know, there were so many rules changing on the daily with mm-hmm. CDC guidelines and what's safe and what isn't safe and what do we do. So th- the philosophy we've chosen here is we're doing everything we can do, both by making our guests wear masks when they come in, doing a health check on them with a temperature and a few questions, um, having them wait in their cars until they get the text message that their station, the area they'll be in, has been sanitized and we're ready for them, making sure that they have an, we have their email addresses when they book their appointment so that we can send them a full list of everything, of what they need to know so that they're, they don't have any surprises when they walk in and they have, a, right. they have a really great experience because, you know, so many of our clients will show up with their children to wait with them while they're getting their hair done. Well, we can't do that now. We're only allowed to have one guest at a time. So we want to make sure they've been informed by us about that rule that's been set forth by the State Board of Cosmetology. And I want to make sure they know they need a mask. And if they don't have one when they get to there, we'll provide them with one. And that the station is sanitized and that, you know, they will be taken from their car directly to where they'll they'll have their service so that they feel safe and that our team feels safe. Um, The team is like, they're... They're our family, so right. we must take care of them. There, There's no choice other than that. Absolutely. What's been the reception from your customers looking at these changes? You know, we've had a, a couple little pushbacks, and believe me, I don't love the mask any more than you do, and certainly <laughs> no more than they do, but we are all in that together, so we can all be like, yep. oh, believe me, we get it, and just be glad you're only here for an hour or two hours. We're here for eight or 10 or 12 hours today, depending on our shift and it's client after client. So um, the reception from our, from the the community has been really strong and great. Uh, We've heard a couple really super compliments from um, medical team members in the community who are, who are applauding our efforts and, uh, We've gotten it wrong a few times, and you have to own that, and you have to apologize for it and fix it. And, you know, luckily those lessons came early in the game, and we fixed it really fast, and every everything worked out. But uh, it's it's you're going to make mistakes, and I think that we all have to give each other grace and give each other a little bit of uh, leeway to learn and be better based on what just happened, on what mm-hmm. happened yesterday, and, and give each other the – the understanding that we all have a different set of, of realities and just, right. Just be supportive and kind. 
Well, I have one final question. It's kind of a two-part question. A lot of the individuals that we work with as NCCJ are, are young people. We have a, a lot of youth programs. And I'm wondering, two parts, like I said, if you can first share any advice that you may have for a young person who is looking to start a business. Um, and the second part of that would be any advice that you may have for a, a young person who's looking to become involved in the community or looking to become involved in charitable giving or fundraising. Well, one thing I just want to be a hundred percent clear on is you can do it. There's zero. You absolutely can do it. It takes consistency. If you are going to be at it two days and off of it five days and back on it three days and off of it one day and then two months later pick it up again, you it's 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 a marathon. It's not a sprint. Mm-hmm. You. Everything is way more obtain, obtainable than you think it is or attainable than you think it is. Uh, you you just have to know where you're heading. Like, what is your goal in running a business? If it's to be rich and do nothing, you really don't need to be opening a business. Because <laughs> the reality of that is you move furniture when it needs moved. You unpack boxes when it needs unpacked. And if you want your team to do it the right way most of the time, that means you have to do it the right way 110% of the time because right. they you you are responsible for the wake you leave behind you, and that's not a role that everyone enjoys. It's a role I love because I love taking care of people, and I love people that I love – I work with a lot of young people. I love creating strong, independent, kind, hardworking people. You don't quit. My dad always taught me, like, if you sign up for something, you finish it and you finish it to the best of your ability, no matter if you think you made a bad deal or not, you finish it to the Mm -hmm. best of your ability. And if you're going to dig a ditch and you agree to dig it, it's the best ditch that can be dug. (laughs) (laughs) Just go for it. Yeah. And, and as far as like charity and community, I'm just know that the, all of this is, is tighter and, and more than you think it is. And if you're a kind person, and you just respect people and you respect people's time and you work hard, you can, you can get this. I, if I can do it as a kid with no money from Carlisle, Ohio, you can absolutely do it. Well, and I'm here if you have any questions. <laughs> <laughs> so just kind of to wrap it up, where can people find the Ruby Girls and Square One Salon in like a physical location? Sure. So, so the Ruby Girls are out and about. We do have a clubhouse on Wayne Avenue. We're not often there, but um, it is where we store our things. We do our rehearsals, and we do get our mail there. And that's on Wayne Avenue next to Ghost Light. Uh, and then Square One, we have six locations, two in Columbus and four in Dayton. And uh, I now, instead of having three business partners, I now have eight. There are eight of us that own the salons. We made ownership opportunities available to some of our long Standing team members who had leadership roles and a desire to own their own business. So we found a way to make that happen. Wow. Um, yeah. So uh, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook, and uh, we have websites for both for squareonesalon.com and therubygirls.com. Wonderful. We appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to talk with us. Wonderful. I appreciate it very much, too. I love what you guys are doing. It's super important. Thank you. Well, you take care. Have a great week, and happy Pride. Happy Pride. Take care. (laughs) All right. Bye-bye.
we wanted to wrap up this episode with some good news. As of recording this episode, on June 15, 2020, the Supreme Court ruled that members of the LGBTQ community are protected under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act that prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex. The court ruled in favor of this motion in a 6-3 vote decision. This is a landmark decision for the LGBTQ community who can now count on equal employment protections under the law. Thank you for tuning in to Gem City Diversity. Come back next week as we dive deeper into diversity and inclusion. For more information on NCCJ and diversity within the Miami Valley, go visit www.nccjgreaterdayton.org. Make sure to like NCCJ of Greater Dayton on Facebook, follow us on Instagram at nccj underscore of underscore greater underscore Dayton, and follow us on Twitter at nccjdayton.